Hi, this is Glenn Rawson. One of the most powerful ways to share history and heritage is by the telling of stories. We began sharing inspiring stories nearly 30 years ago. Each of those stories is true and was intended to inspire and strengthen faith. Over the years, those stories have reached millions around the world. This podcast is for you to listen, learn, and enjoy. I'm not sure where this next story will fit, but I tell this story to you because it's close to my heart. As I've mentioned in previous firesides, I'm a convert to the church. I joined in college thinking that I had no pioneer ancestry. Years later, I find out not only did I have pioneer ancestry, I had a lot of pioneer ancestors, among whom was John Cox in the Mormon battalion. Ever since then, the Mormon battalion has been very dear to my heart. And coming up on the end of June, I will begin to present some of the history of the Mormon battalion. On the History of the Saints website, historyofthesaints.org, we have a book and a DVD about the journey of the Mormon battalion that's available there now for anyone who wants it. And we also have a download special of all the television shows that we did. I believe there were nine of them, nine television shows, the audio and video available there for downloads for anyone who wants to know the story, the remarkable story of the journey of the Mormon battalion. Among those of the Mormon battalion is the remarkable story of Thomas and Anne Karen. The story begins in Little Crosby, Lancashire, England. John owned a bakery, a very successful bakery, and his daughter, Anne, worked with him in the bakery. Then her father died of typhoid fever. Anne ran an ad for someone to help her in the bakery, and the fellow who answered the ad was Thomas Karen. Well, he had some experience. He was a skilled baker. He came highly recommended, and so she hired him. As so often happens, over the next two years in working together, they fell in love and had a desire to get married, but Anne's mother was opposed. Why was she opposed? Because Anne was an English Catholic and Thomas Karen was a member of the Church of England. That made the marriage incompatible. Well, finally, Anne's grandmother gave consent for the marriage and they were married on the 11th of May, 1833. Now, when she married him, Anne discovered that Thomas was a seeker. He was looking for the truth. When Latter-day Saint missionaries came and brought him the Book of Mormon, he studied it diligently and, in time, chose baptism, May 11th, 1842. Anne was a little reluctant, but eventually she, too, joined the church. But once again, Thomas was not content to stay there. The spirit of the gathering took hold of him and Anne, and they decided that they would immigrate to the United States, join the saints in Nauvoo, which they did. They were a part of the pioneer company that left with Brigham Young in 1846. Thomas and Anne, who now have several children, journey out of Nauvoo, and they come to winter quarters on the Missouri just about the time that Captain James Allen of the United States Army 
came to Brigham Young and asked for 500 volunteers from among the Mormons to form a battalion to march to California to fight with the United States in the war against Mexico. Now listen to this. Thomas stepped forward and was assigned to Company E of the Mormon battalion. He said, and I quote, only the strongest sense of duty and devotion to my religion could induce me to leave my wife in her delicate condition and our children under such distressing circumstances. Upon that decision made by both of them, Anne went into labor and delivered a baby girl, premature, who lived only 24 hours. In July of 1846, Thomas Karen marched off with the other members of the Mormon battalion headed west. Anne and the five children remained there on the Missouri, living in a wagon at winter quarters. It was the rainy season, and frequently the children would wake up and find their ill and weakened mother immersed in her bedding in the wagon box. They would pick her up, dip out the water, and lay her back down. And I know enough about what happened at Winter Quarters to know that that was called the Valley Forge of Mormonism. It was a time when as many as one in 12 of our people died. It was a horrible time of suffering. And so the story of Anne Karen and her children is not surprising. Now in time, a man came and offered Anne Karen a cabin, but it was back up the trail in Iowa at Garden Grove. Just to have a cabin, she went. And there in Garden Grove, she made a comfortable home. Then one day, in October of 1847, a year and a half later, a stranger clad in buckskin and buffalo leather came to their door. When he entered the cabin, the youngest children were frightened at the terrifying sight of the man, but they quickly realized it was daddy. Words cannot express the great joy of such a return home, wrote their daughter Catherine. As my parents had in their parting, thought they would never meet again, end of quote. Thomas and Ann Karen eventually made their way west and became some of the first settlers of Dry Creek, Utah, known today as Lehi. There they lived, there they served, and there they are buried. I tell you that story because I've been telling stories like this long enough that I've had people who were not of our faith, people who are not of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who look at a story like that and say, that is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. I've actually had people look at stories like that and say, only a foolish Mormon would think that's a good story. Well, okay, call me crazy, but that's a good story. Thank the Lord for fathers and mothers who love the Lord more than they love themselves, more even than they love their families. For those fathers and those mothers who will do their duty by God, obey him, will not only lay claim on a heavenly home, but they will, by their faith and example, take their loved ones with them, while those who reject the Lord will lose both. I am grateful for those fathers who keep their covenants and do their duty 
and come home. You gotta know, this is a really hard fireside to do. I hope you know that. This next story takes place in a little town that I've never been to. Maybe you have, but I never have. It's called Tropic, Utah. Until I read this story, I didn't even know there was such a place. But Tropic is evidently at the east entrance to Bryce Canyon. The town was first settled in 1892, and two of the first families that settled in Tropic, Utah were George Henry Meekham and William Winspear Spendlove. Both were married, both brought their families, and by 1899, they were there and prospering. And then William Spendlove was called on a mission. Now, they were dirt farmers. They were not wealthy. They didn't have the means for William to answer this mission call. Not only that, but they had a family of five growing children, ranging from a few months old to eight years old. Nevertheless, William answered the call and went to the southeast United States to serve, leaving his wife, Alice Isom Spendlove, to do the best she could, not only to support the five children on her own, but to provide the $20 a month to support William on that mission. I shake my head. I don't know how she could possibly have done it. Then Alice decided that she would accept the invitation of her widowed mother and move back to her hometown of Virgin, Utah. So she went back to Virgin while William was gone. There, the housing would be free. Alice's siblings would help care for the children, and she would have room and board. And she would rent out the farm in Tropic to raise the money to support William on the mission. Well, that's what they did, and all went along just fine. However, the rental income was sporadic, and there was never anything extra. But somehow, she managed to keep everything afloat. Then, as time approached that William was to return from his mission, this is 1901, she expected that William would come home in just a few months. So she moved back to Tropic with the idea of cleaning the place up, getting the ground plowed and planted and ready for William as soon as he got back. This meant that she no longer had rental income and she had no one to help support her except her own labor. Well, not long after she got back, money ran out and so did Alice's stock of flour. On the day she gave her children the last of the bread, she told them that they needed to pray very sincerely that night for God to send them more. They knelt as a family, and Alice told the Lord the circumstances in their private prayers that night. The children went before the Lord and explained to him their predicament. Alice did not go to bed that night. She lit the lamp and stayed up the rest of that night sewing on the dress, hoping to finish it as soon as she could so that she could get the income needed to go buy the flour to make bread for her children. And here's my point. Sometime after midnight, there came a knock at the door. She opened it to find the neighbor, George Henry Meekham, standing there. Now, the Meekhams were not a wealthy family. George is listed as a day laborer on the census. He lived hand to mouth, just like everyone else in those days, as a dirt farmer. But George was a hard worker, and the Meekhams were doing okay. Quote, George explained to Alice, 
that he was on his way home from the grist mill in Panguitch. And as long as her lamp was lit, he decided to stop and, quote, pay you back for that sack of flour I owe you that night rather than returning in the morning. Alice protested, George, you don't owe me anything. Oh, yes, I do, he responded. I owe every missionary's wife a sack of flour. And he brought in from his wagon a large sack holding the flour ground from two bushels of grain. There would be biscuits for breakfast and bread every day until the husband and father could return again to provide for the family. I say this kindly and affectionately, but I didn't grow up with a priesthood father. I came from a non-member background. But there were men in my life early on who were like priesthood fathers, who did their best to set a good example and minister in love. I've been inspired by them all of my life. I am grateful for those fathers out there who by the size of their heart and the length of their arms father other children as well, who take care of everyone around them, who are fathers to other fathers' children and help. I'm not saying this very well, but I am so grateful to those fathers who are father enough and have enough love that they can help other people's children as well. I don't know if I should say this, but how in the world can you and I, if we hope someday to be heavenly parents, limit our love and care only for those immediately around us? July 1st, 1856. Somewhere on the Overland Trail in the state of Nebraska, as the handcart company journeyed along, about noon, a little boy, six-year-old Arthur Parker, feverish and ill, sat down by the side of the trail and quickly fell asleep in tall grass. The MacArthur Handcart Company pushed on, unaware that the little boy was there. That is, until the onslaught of a violent thunderstorm later that afternoon, forced the immigrants to stop and set up camp. Once they did so, Arthur was discovered missing, and a search was mounted that lasted all night. Meanwhile, storm, thunder, and lightning raged fearfully all night long. The immigrants, it is said in the journals, lay all night in wet clothes until morning, and awoke with water running under them in streams. The next morning, three men, including Captain Dan MacArthur himself, went back and searched for the lost child, but he was nowhere to be found. The company remained in camp for the day, waiting, searching, and drying out. On the morning of the third day, July 3rd, 1856, the decision was made. The company had to move on. Time was precious. Food was scarce. They had to go. Robert Parker was not willing to leave his son. He determined he would go back and search some more. His wife, Anne, whom Robert had once described as, quote, the most beautiful girl in England, pinned a bright red shawl about his shoulders. If he found him dead, he could use this to bury him, and if he was found alive, he could use the shawl to signal them. 
Robert turned east, and Anne and the three remaining children picked up the handcart and started west. The camp moved on an incredible and exhausting 25 miles that next day. Throughout the day, Anne kept glancing over her shoulder to see if Robert was coming. As camp was made that night, Anne would climb to the highest eminence and look off towards the east for a sign. Consumed by worry, Anne could not sleep. The danger of wolves was real. Stories of immigrants devoured by wolves or carried off by Indians, those were real. What if he'd been taken? What if he'd been attacked? On July 4th, the camp again moved forward another 22 miles. And once again, Anne passed the day, vigilant but weary. July 5th, the company remained in camp. Then, Sunday morning, July 6th, 1856, at 8.30 a.m., Anne, still watching, saw in the rays of the rising sun the red shawl and recognized her husband's familiar gait. It is recorded that the brave little mother sank in a pitiful heap in the sand, and for the first night in six nights, she slept. Archer Walters, one of the company, witnessed the boy's return and recorded, quote, great joy throughout the camp. The mother's joy I cannot describe, end of quote. Arthur, the boy, had awakened in the grass to find himself alone. When the storms hit, he took shelter under a tree, spending the night in the open. The wolves surrounded him and howled, but for some odd reason did not harm him. The next morning, the lad set out walking and walked nine miles to the home of a Dutchman, where Robert Parker later found him and the boy was saved. Thank the Lord for a determined father, for a prayerful mother. I am grateful to those fathers who don't give up. When their children are lost, they keep working, they keep praying until their children, like the penitent prodigal, are brought home. Oh, and by the way, just an incidental, this same Robert Parker was the grandfather of Robert Leroy Parker, otherwise known as Butch Cassidy. Grandfather's work is never done. So the last story I'll share with you tonight. And again, this is in commemoration of an anniversary, which I will talk about at length next week. One day, many years ago, some little girls <clears throat> were playing in front of Emma Bell's house. They were talking about their grandfathers. Emma Bell had never heard of a grandpa, so she asked where hers was. One of the older girls said, your grandpa was a bad man and somebody killed him. Then the girl turned to her friends and they all started laughing. Well, Emma Bell was hurt and she turned and ran into the house. Her father opened the door for her and she rushed in. Where's my grandpa? She blurted out. Why can't I have a grandpa like the other girls? Was he a bad man? 
Did men kill him? Emma was clearly upset, but her daddy picked her up, walked over, and sat down. Your grandpa, he exclaimed, was my father. He was not a bad man. They killed your grandpa and my father. As Alexander the father spoke, his tears fell on my face, Emma Bell said. She always felt that the tears were not for his loss of so long ago, but for hers. That little girl, my dear friends, was Emma Bell Smith. The grandfather she lost and never knew was Joseph Smith, Jr. We always talk about the martyrdom in terms of what the church lost. What about in terms of what Emma lost and Alexander and Joseph and Frederick and Julia and what the grandchildren lost? Thank heavens for fathers and thank the Lord for kind, caring, loving, righteous grandfathers. Those of you who had a father or have a father who loves you or loved you, thank the Lord for him, no matter which side of the veil he's on. Those of you that had a father who loved you and taught you well and showed you examples of righteousness, count the Lord, the blessings from the Lord even more. As tough and gruff as sometimes they are, it counts and it matters. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. I'm Glenn Rawson from Sandy, Utah at Big Ideas Studio, Chuck Myers' place. Thank you. Thanks for joining me, and I'll see you Sunday. Thank you for listening. Many of the stories you heard today have been published and are archived at glennrawsonstories.com. If you would like more information, you can communicate with us there. We will be back again with another podcast next week.